History on the Side podcast, the podcast that takes a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing but play a much larger role in the story. I'm Josh Burns, and welcome to Episode 12, Cabeza de Vaca, I Would Raft 500 Miles. Over the last few episodes, we have looked at some of the early history of the Spanish conquest of the New World, culminating in the victory of the Spanish conquistadors over the Aztecs at Tenochtitlan. We saw how the Spanish pretty much imposed their will on the Aztecs and their neighbors, and saw hints of the coming systems of slavery and oppression that would allow the Spanish to become so entrenched in North and South America that we are still dealing with the effects today. We saw the Spanish as conqueror and victor at the expense of the native peoples. And fun fact, those Conquistador episodes were originally put together as background information for this episode, so I'm pretty excited about it. Today's episode is quite different, though, so there's a little bit of info to unpack. If you recall from our last episode, a certain gentleman by the name of Panfilo Narvaez was sent to Mexico to try and put a stop to Hernando Cortez's schemes in Tenochtitlan. Ultimately, Narvaez was unsuccessful and lost his right eye in the process. After two years in prison at Veracruz, Narvaez was sent back to Spain. Shortly after, Narvaez was made the Adelantado of Florida by King Charles V. The title of Adelantado was essentially a term used for the man who would be sort of like the ultimate authority of a particular area. So Narvaez would have been the main decision maker for a massive area that was very loosely called Florida, essentially. If you look at a map of North America, find Florida, and then find the city of Jacksonville close to the Atlantic Ocean. Then draw a straight line from Jacksonville west through the little tails of Mississippi and Alabama, through South Louisiana, Texas, and through modern-day Chihuahua and Sonora in Mexico, jump the Gulf of California, and end at the Pacific Ocean after crossing the Baja California Peninsula. So yeah, at one point, all of that territory was once considered Florida, and if everything worked out as planned, that would have all been under the control of one man, Penfilo Narvaez. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself, because at the beginning of our story, this vast, uncharted land was simply an unmapped blob on the edges of the map. Narvaez had to go lay claim to it, and begin the long process of integrating it into the territories of a still young New Spain. Narvaez began gathering troops, supplies, and ships to sail to a section of his new territory named Panuco. If you look at a map of the Gulf of Mexico, the province of New Spain called Panuco lay along the Mexican Gulf Coast near the Rio de las Palmas and extending into the present-day state of Tamaulipas. This province was to be the center of government for Narvaez's new territory and was the ultimate destination of the expedition he was putting together. Preparations for this new expedition began in Spain in 1526. Narvaez was to pay for and lead an expedition consisting of at least a hundred men and some women. He also had to set sail within a year, which put Narvaez in a little bit of a time crunch. If he could pull it off though, Narvaez stood to receive some nice tax exemptions, huge tracts of land, and the titles of Governor of Florida, Captain General, Chief Law Enforcer, Civilian Authority, and Superintendent of Fortresses. The Chief Law Enforcer position could be passed down to any of his descendants for all of time, so that was a pretty sweet deal. In short, our friend Panvilo stood to get lots of money, lots of land, and lots of political power. The question, of course, was could he pull it off? Now, by this point, the Spanish exploration of the New World was picking up steam. Provisions could be acquired, settlers and sailors could be found, and ships could be bought relatively easily. 
In the midst of the relative easiness of getting a new expedition together, a moral dilemma slowly started to gain traction in some circles of the Spanish social and religious scene. The issue was centered around a question that had been asked as far back as 1514. Spain had discovered these vast lands, and these vast lands were filled with individuals who at least had the appearance of being human. They dressed differently, if at all, spoke a plethora of languages, and worshipped bizarre gods with fervor. These Indians certainly looked like humans, but how human were they actually? If the Indians were not human, then there were very few rules to follow in how they should and could be treated. They could be enslaved, beaten, executed, or whatever else at any time, and by this point in history, this had already been happening to the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean and of Central America. But if the Indians were actually human with immortal souls, you know, like the Spanish, then their enslavement at the hands of early Spanish conquerors was unjust and sinful. A Spanish colonist turned friar named Bartolomé de las Casas was especially vocal in this regard. While reading the book of Ecclesiasticus, chapter 34, he came across verses 21 and 22, which state, quote, The bread of the needy is their life. He that defraudeth him thereof is a man of blood. He that taketh away his neighbor's living slayeth him, and he that defraudeth the laborer of his hire is a bloodshedder. End quote. Those two verses seem to have really gotten de las Casas' attention and would push him to fight for the rights of the Indians in the New World. His message was that God intended for the natives to be free and that enslaving them was a mortal sin. He gave up the Indians that he had received as a reward for his part in the conquest of Cuba and began to petition King Charles I of Spain for the rights of the indigenous peoples of the New World to be honored and for labor reforms to be enacted to protect the Indians. The Indians, he argued, quote, need to be placed beyond the grasp of the Spaniards because no remedy that leaves them in Spanish hands will stop their annihilation, end quote. Now, unsurprisingly, this made Bartolomé de las Casas a highly controversial figure in Spanish society. His tales of the horrific abuses suffered by the Indians fell upon the sympathetic ears in the Spanish court, and some of the horror stories involved Señor Narváez. Narváez countered these stories by claiming that de las Casas was a man of little credibility who spoke of things that he didn't see firsthand. De las Casas would eventually go on to publish several books on this topic that were later used as propaganda by the British to highlight the cruelties and injustices happening in the Spanish colonial system. De las Casas' cries for reform would, at present at least, not have much traction. Narváez would play both sides of this argument, however. In response to de las Casas' demands for Indian freedom, Narváez replied that setting Indians free would be a breach of the terms of the contracts that New World settlers agreed to come to New Spain. He also asserted that the Indians, quote, do not have the capacity to remain by themselves, end quote. Guess he forgot that the natives had been living on their own by themselves for hundreds of years before then, but whatever. However, Narvaez could also play the other side of the argument whenever it suited his purposes. In the months that he was begging the king for permission to send an expedition to Florida, he stated that any delays in his plan would, quote, weigh greatly on your royal conscience if it hindered the conversion of the Indians to our holy Catholic faith and postpone the benefits to your royal patrimony, end quote. So, yeah, it seems to me that our friend Panfilo would say anything to get his hands on that sweet New World Commission. Like I said, he ultimately would secure permission from the king to lead an expedition, but the notion of the issue of Indian humanity shouldn't be ignored. 
we will definitely circle back around to this at the end of our story. But for now, just sit right back and you'll hear a tale. A tale of a fateful trip that started from a tropic port aboard a tiny ship. The expedition finally set sail for the New World on June 17, 1527, with a crew somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 people on board. The tiny ships spent a month at sea before landing at Española, where they resupplied and prepared for the next leg of the journey. While in Española, 140 out of the nearly 600 expedition members deserted and chose to remain on the island. Now, there was no way for them to know at the time, but those 140 were extremely fortunate. Of those aspiring colonists that stay with the voyage, four of them will be central to this story. Let's meet them, shall we? First up is Royal Treasurer Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca from the Spanish town of Jerez de la Frontera. Now, the first thing to know about him is his unusual surname, Cabeza de Vaca. The story goes that during the Reconquista against the Moors, one of his ancestors, a Martin Alaja, marked a secret mountain pass for the Spanish king Alfonso VII's forces with the skull of a cow. The king followed the cow's head marker and won the battle of Las Navas de Tolosa against the enemy Moorish forces. King Alfonso VII gave Señor Alaja the title of Cabeza de Vaca as thanks, and the rest is history. Our Cabeza de Vaca was in his mid-30s when he signed on to the Narvaez expedition, and even by that age he had already fought in several battles in service of the Spanish crown. His fealty had been rewarded with the job of royal treasurer, which meant that he oversaw the finances of the expedition and made sure that the crown received its share of any profits that Narvaez made. The next two gentlemen are Captains Andres Dorantes and Alonso de Castillo. They were both the social equals of Cabeza de Vaca and were Narvaez's partners in the expedition. Dorantes was in his mid-twenties, but like Cabeza de Vaca, had already seen battle in service of the crown. Castillo was more scholarly and the son of a physician. The last gentleman was Estebanico, an African slave owned by Captain Dorantes. He was originally from the town of Azamor on the Moroccan coast and had a talent for learning languages, which would be crucial later in our story. Cabeza de Vaca, Captain Dorantes, and Captain Castillo were all faithful and pious Catholics. They would place their trust and their lives in the hands of God time and time again without wavering in their faith. According to Professor Andres Resendez in his most excellent book, A Land So Strange, Estebanico was, quote, forced to abjure Islam and convert to Christianity at some point during his early experience as a slave, end quote. These four men will be the focus of our story very soon, because, spoiler alert, everyone else dies. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. After spending almost six weeks in Española, the expedition sailed for Cuba in September 1527. And that's when the trouble started for this doomed expedition. Putting in first at Santiago, Narvaez managed to procure some much-needed supplies for his ship. The only caveat was that those supplies were in the town of Trinidad, almost 300 miles from Santiago. No problem, Narvaez must have thought, and sent Cabeza de Vaca and two ships on ahead to Trinidad while he finished getting other supplies in Santiago. Now, for those listeners who have never grown up in or around the Gulf Coast regions of the United States, the beginning of June until the end of November is hurricane season. September is usually one of the more active months for hurricanes to form and batter the Caribbean, Central America, and the Gulf Coast regions. There wasn't really any way to know this in the 1500s, though, or that a potential hurricane was heading right for where you were. 
Well, in 1527, while Cabeza de Vaca and his two ships were heading to Trinidad, the weather started getting rough. Storms battered the island, and though the Spanish were able to get the two ships into port, high winds and rough waves were starting to become a concern. And then the actual hurricane hit. Cabeza de Vaca recorded, quote, At this time, the sea and storm began to swell so much that there was no less tempest in the town than at sea, because all the houses and all the churches blew down, and it was necessary for us to band together in groups of seven or eight men, our arms locked with one another, in order to save ourselves from being carried away by the wind. End quote. The next day, Cabeza de Vaca and the 30-ish survivors found only scattered remnants of the two ships and their cargoes. Two ships, 20 horses, and 60 men were lost overnight. Understandably, the date for actually sailing to Florida was pushed back until February of 1528. This was good for the morale of the group as a whole and allowed Narvaez to finally find a ship's pilot who claimed to be familiar with the Florida coast. The man's name was Diego Mirello, and he was supposed to have traveled to Rio de las Palmas and Panuco already. He was supposed to have been familiar with the Florida coast and to have been a very fine pilot. Now, keep in mind that the Spanish still had very little knowledge of this huge swath of land that they sought to control. Florida at this point was simply the starting point, while Panuco was the ending point. Florida itself had been, quote, quote, discovered back in 1513 by Juan Ponce de Leon. While legend says that he was looking for the so-called Fountain of Youth, it's more likely that he was looking for gold and other riches on the way to uncover any number of mystical places like the seven cities of Cibola or the island of the Bimini. Like I said, the Spanish really didn't know the sheer size of these new territories because, as anyone who has tried to drive to Orlando to go to Disney World will tell you, Florida is a lot bigger than you think, and that's in a modern car. As we will see, it also seems as if the Spanish didn't really and truly respect these new lands and the ways in which they and the creatures that lived there worked. Anyway, after leaving Cuba in 1528, it quickly became clear that Mr. Morello's resume may have been embellished. His inability to navigate seemingly easy in shallow waters was worrisome in and of itself, but the weather wasn't helping either. Sailing for several weeks west in the hope of reaching what is now Mexico, the lookout soon spotted land. The only problem was that it wasn't Mexico. Not even close. It was Tampa Bay, Florida. The expedition was off by more than 900 miles. What went wrong? Well, partly Morello's inability, but also a massive ocean current known as the Gulf Stream played a part. The strong current had pushed the ships back east the whole time. On April 12, 1528, the Narvaez expedition reached the western Florida coast. The crew was sick and sick of the sea. Many of the horses had died along the way, and of the few who remained, none could really be used. Nevertheless, Narvaez immediately claimed the land for Spain and set about making camp. Contact was soon made with the local Indians, who told them that, mm, no, no, there's no gold here. Our land is quite poor. But there's this other land farther north that has lots of gold and other good stuff. It's called Appalachie. They have all the fun stuff. And that was all Narvaez needed to hear. Gathering all of the high-ranking members of the voyage, Narvaez told them he wanted to split the group in two. The strong and able-bodied men were to march north to Appalachie on foot, while everyone else would sail there on the ships. Senor Narvaez clearly forgot the rule of never splitting the party. While most of the group approved of the plan, not all of them did, Cabeza de Vaca among them. 
Food and provisions were already low. They were in unfamiliar territory, and the horses were too weak to be of any use in, any, in an attack. Narvaez's no-risk-no-reward opinion was the one that mattered, and Appalachia and its riches beckoned. Sure, some might die on the way, but those who lived would gain lots and lots of shiny gold. Three hundred men and forty horses set out on foot headed north toward Appalachia, but confident that Panuco could not be far beyond that. Cabeza de Vaca, who journeyed with them, records walking across flat, sometimes marshy terrain, and that, quote, during this time we did not find a single Indian, end quote. Food soon became an issue. The meager provisions of two pounds of hardtack and a half pound of pork were soon gone. The Spanish were forced to live off the land and to learn what was and wasn't edible. What few natives they did come across, they were soon at war with, and Narvaez and Cabeza de Vaca's relationship soured even further. Days stretched into weeks before finally, in June 1528, the famished and haggard Europeans caught sight of the legendary city of Appalachia. It was not what they were expecting. Sitting next to the Ancilla River, Appalachia was not so much a thriving metropolis brimming with gold like Tenochtitlan in Mexico was, but more of a chiefdom of farmland situated on fertile soil. Naturally, the starved Spanish attacked the village because why not? Taking the chief hostage, Narvaez and his men set up camp in one of the outlying villages. For about 25-ish days, they rested, ate corn, fought off the Indians, and slowly came to the realization that there was no gold here, just lots and lots of corn. The ships were nowhere to be seen. They were stranded in this strange and hostile land. Desperate to save themselves, the Spanish eventually marched toward the Gulf Coast to a village called Aute. Unfortunately for the beleaguered Spaniards, Aute had been burned to the ground to take away any hope for even a semi-comfortable experience. By this point, exhaustion, disease, and enemy attacks had reduced the number of Europeans in this doomed group to around 250. Seeing that there was very little reason to stay here, the men pushed onto the coast. Cabeza de Vaca records the hardships the men faced, saying, quote, It was a great sorrow and pain to see the necessity and hardship in which we found ourselves. The men were in such a state that there were few from whom any service could have been obtained. End quote. That any service could have been obtained bit means that disease was running rampant through the ranks of the men. The few horses that were alive were not much help either. The men reached the coast, possibly near the St. Mark's River in Florida, and went from one source of despair to another. The coastline here was no good. Waist-deep water surrounded a maze of tiny islands and sandbars that would prevent their ships from getting to them. Even if the geography was perfect, though, the ships they had left four months ago were nowhere to be seen. Cabeza de Vaca gives his thoughts on the matter, saying, quote, I refrain here from telling this at greater length because each one can imagine for himself what could happen in a land so strange and so poor and so lacking in every single thing that it seemed impossible either to be in it or to escape from it. End quote. So where were the ships? Was anyone coming to save these men? Did anyone go looking for these poor souls? Well, things initially weren't looking too good for those on the ships either. They tried to follow the coastline up to where they thought Panuco was, but since they had given most of the food to the soldiers who went ashore, the lack of food became almost an immediate concern. Luckily, right before separating, Narvaez had ordered Morello, the pilot, to return to Cuba to get more, su more supplies. Somehow, Morello was able to accomplish this without getting lost or blown off course, 
and he arrived just in time with enough food and water to allow for a search and rescue mission to begin. The ships began their search near Tampa Bay, where one of the ships spotted a stick intentionally stuck in the sand with a letter stuck in it. They called out to the natives on shore to bring them the letter, which the Indians refused to do, and insisted that the Spaniards come and get it themselves. Suspecting a trap, but thinking that the letter might contain information about Narvaez's whereabouts, a young man named Juan Ortiz and an older man rode to shore. They were immediately attacked. The older man was killed on the beach, but Ortiz was captured and enslaved. He was rescued 11 years later by another Spanish expedition to the area. It was said that Ortiz suffered greatly in his captivity, and that he, quote, had wished to die because he was forced to carry wood and water all the time and was given little food or sleep. Every day he was cruelly beaten with sticks, slapped in the face, or whipped and was subjected to other torments, especially during their days of celebration. Had he not been a Christian, he would have taken his life with his own hands, end quote. The search for Narvaez continued. The ship sailed north along the coast for a year, but never found any trace of them. Finally, with the provisions running out, the ships returned to Cuba empty-handed. Stuck in a strange, unfamiliar land with no hope for escape, a grim determinism seems to have taken hold of the castaways. For six or seven weeks, Narvaez and his troops stayed here in what they called the Bay of Horses, doing whatever they could to survive. Every few days, they would kill a horse to eat, and they ended up killing and eating so many horses that 11 years later, another Spanish expedition identified the spot based on the number of horse skulls still present. The men even tried to melt and recast the metals that they had on them into useful tools, like axes, for their most desperate attempt to flee and survive. They were going to make rafts, five of them that would be able to carry them out into the gulf where they would either be spotted by passing ships or drift into Panuco, their original target location. Now we've already seen how these men fared against the Gulf Stream, so the Panuco plan may have been a little far-fetched, but nothing ventured, nothing gained, I guess. The killing of the horses and the melting of their weapons was a risk that the survivors ultimately had to take, but in so doing they were giving up their two major advantages in the New World. The presence of horses and a superior tech tree had allowed the Europeans to do pretty much whatever they wanted in the New World. Without the ability to maintain these animals and that equipment, their usefulness was extremely limited. As Professor Resendez says, quote, From now on, they would have to face the New World fully exposed to its perils. Surviving because of superior military technology was one thing. It would be quite another to do so by wits alone. End quote. We are now in the summer of 1528. The castaways slowly managed to craft the five rafts necessary for the journey out of Florida and across the Gulf of Mexico. The horses were all killed, both to provide the needed nourishment to even attempt this and to provide a sense of solidarity among the group. A, we're all in this together mentality, sort of like high school musical. Progress was slow and only those men who actually worked were given access to the highly coveted horse meat. They made water containers from the horse skin and gathered as much of the edible plants in the area as they could. Finally, after weeks of hard work, the Spanish set sail on November 22, 1528, with 50 men on each raft. Narvaez commanded one, our friends Captains Castillo and Dorantes had another, and Cabeza de Vaca had a third. The other two were manned by the remaining religious personnel and by two other military captains, respectively. Cabeza de Vaca gives his thoughts, saying, quote, and so greatly can necessity prevail that it made us risk going in this manner and placing ourselves in a sea so treacherous and without any one of us who went having any knowledge of the art of navigation. End quote. 
the men were truly at the mercy of the sea. For the first few days, things went as well as they could have expected, all things considered. Soon they were in the open waters of the Gulf of Mexico. They sailed slash drifted west for a month, hugging the coast of what would become the coasts of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Occasionally they would land on the shore to try to take on some provisions, but soon enough food and fresh water became issues again. After a month, the horse-skin water bottles were rotted and useless. Exposure to the elements, storms, lack of water, and meager food supplies began to take their toll. The cruelest thing, though, had to have been the men surrounded by water that they couldn't drink. Sadly, though, after five days without any drinkable water, the inevitable happened. Some of the men turned to drinking seawater. Cabeza de Vaca sadly reports, quote, And some were so careless in doing so that suddenly five men died on us, end quote. He goes on to say that, quote, I do not think there is need to tell in detail the miseries and hardships in which we found ourselves, since considering the place where we were and the little hope we had of survival, each one can imagine a great deal of what would happen there, end quote. After a few more days of travel, storms threatened the integrity of the rafts. Dangerously dehydrated, the drifters were approached by some natives in canoes. Cabeza de Vaca states, quote, And the Indians who came in the canoes spoke to us, and without wanting to wait for us, turned back. They were large people and well-proportioned, and they did not carry bows or arrows, end quote. Desperate, the castaways followed them to the shore. In what must have seemed a miracle, the natives greeted the Spanish with a veritable feast of cooked fish and fresh water. The men feasted on these simple provisions, and Narvaez was even put up in the chief's hut. The Spanish gave the natives some of the beads and other trinkets that they still had with them, and then tried to get some sleep on the shore and around the camp. For some reason, things didn't go well that night. Cabeza de Vaca doesn't give a reason for this, but during the night, the natives attacked the weakened Spanish. Three Spaniards were killed, and the rest retreated to the relative safety of the shore to wait out the rest of the night. The natives melted into the night, and when they were able to, the Spanish again took to the gulf with several clay pots full of water on the rafts. Three or four days later, they were again approached by some Indians who communicated that they would bring the Spanish water, but only if the Spanish gave up the clay pots they carried. Not trusting the natives, but also in desperate need of water, the Spanish were in a dilemma until two members of the party volunteered to go with the Indians to get the water. The two volunteers were never seen by the castaways again. The following day, the Spanish came upon a most wonderful sight. Spilling into the Gulf of Mexico, its fresh water a literal lifesaver for the thirsty Spanish, was the mighty Mississippi River. Centuries before, Johnny Horton and Jimmy Driftwood arrived and took a little trip with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. These explorers arrived after traveling over 350 miles from the Bay of Horses. Now there was bad news, good news, and more bad news, however. The bad news was that Panuco, their ultimate destination, was still over 500 long miles away. But the more immediate good news was that their thirst was quenched. But the even more immediate bad news was that the rafts were quickly being pushed out to the open sea thanks to the massive volume of water that flows through the mouth of the Mississippi River. After struggling against the powerful current for two days, the tired men tried in vain to keep their rafts together as night fell. In the morning, Cabeza de Vaca was alarmed to discover that he could only see two of the five rafts anywhere nearby. Rowing his raft over to the closest one, he and his men saw Panfilo Narvaez and his men. 
The other visible raft was too far out to sea to attempt reaching, and trying to stay close to each other would ultimately prove useless anyway. Cabeza de Vaca called out to Narvaez, asking him to throw them a line to keep them together, but Narvaez refused. When Cabeza de Vaca asked Narvaez what his orders now were, since Narvaez was still technically in command of this expedition, Narvaez answered that, quote, It was no longer time for some men to rule over others, but that each one should do whatever seemed best to save his life. End quote. Undoubtedly shaken by this fatalistic command, Cabeza de Vaca and his men rowed out to the third raft, which had surprisingly stayed close enough to be visible. The two rafts full of men sailed together for a few more days, but by this point the men were so weak they could barely move. What little rations they had left were reduced to a small half-handful of raw maize a day. Hunger and thirst weren't their only problems, though. A storm blew in and separated the two rafts, leaving Cabeza de Vaca and his men alone once again. Cabeza de Vaca describes his raftmates, saying, quote, the people began to faint in such a manner that when the sun set, all those who came in my raft were fallen on top of one another in it, so close to death that few were conscious. End quote. He goes on and continues, quote, Two hours into the night, the helmsman told me that I should take charge of the raft because he was in such condition that he thought he would die that very night. End quote. The following morning, the helmsman was still alive and those who were conscious could hear the breaking of waves on a shoreline. Frantically, the men rowed toward this new shore, and a wave helped them out by pushing the raft onto the beach. Cabeza de Vaca again describes the men coming onto shore by saying, quote, They began to leave the raft, half walking, half crawling, and as they came on land to some bluffs, we made a fire and toasted some of the maize that we carried, and we found rainwater, and with the heat of the fire, the men revived and began to regain strength, end quote. Incredibly, against all odds, Cabeza de Vaca and his raftmates had landed on or near Galveston Island in modern-day Texas. Even more miraculously, all five of the rafts survived to land at various points along the Texas Gulf Coast, from Galveston all the way down to around Padre Island. Sadly, not many of the crews survived much longer after making landfall. The castaways who landed near Padre Island were set upon by the local Indian tribes and were all killed. The raft carrying the religious personnel for the trip crashed onto the shore. Those men started marching south and eventually met up with Panfilo Narvaez's crew, who had run aground as well. The one-eyed commander of this doomed expedition, insecure about his social position and fearing native attacks, gave himself the ability to sleep on the last remaining raft with only a helmsman and one other helper. Y you see where this is going, right? During the night, a wind blew the raft out to sea, and Panfilo Narvaez was never seen again. The remaining crew of these two rafts continued south as far as they could before winter set in. But like the Jamestown colony 80 years later, the survivors experienced their own starving time and resorted to cannibalism to stay alive. By March 1529, only one man had survived. This leaves the last two rafts carrying Cabeza de Vaca, Captain Durantes, Captain Castillo, and Estebanico. Unknown to them, they had all washed up on opposite ends of the same island. Cabeza de Vaca on one end, and the other three of our main characters on the other. Somehow, incredibly, they and their men had survived the long journey across the Gulf coastline from Florida to Texas, a distance of almost 600 miles as the crow flies. And that's where we will leave our castaways for this episode. Tired, thirsty, weak, and starving. For Cabeza de Vaca and his men, all they can do now is survive. 
Before we go, I'd like to apologize for the lack of updates and episodes of the last few weeks. I'll try to be more consistent with getting new episodes out in the future. The only real excuse that's not really an excuse that I have is that it's not every day that your alma mater wins the national championship, so I was probably too invested in that for probably a little too long. One announcement that I'm really excited about is that the podcast has its own brand new shiny website. It's still very much a work in progress. You still have the new website smell, but you can go check it out at www.historyontheside.com to get information on the show, links to the episodes, pictures, and maps that help explain the stories, and lists of the sources that I use to create the episodes. I've never had my own personal website, so I'm pretty excited about it. Go check it out. I can't leave before I give a very special shout-out to my lovely wife for one of the best Christmas gifts I've ever gotten. Somehow, she sneakily had a handful of t-shirts made with the podcast logo on them, got some of our friends to buy them, and then gave me one. It was a great surprise that I didn't see coming, so big shout-out to her. She's the best wife ever. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, cries of outrage, or accusations of heresy, you can get in touch with me by emailing historyontheside at gmail.com, through Facebook or Instagram by searching History on the Side, or by looking on the brand new shiny new car smell website at www.historyontheside.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for episode 13, Cabeza de Vaca, and I Would Walk 500 More. <laughs>